Amen. If you're visiting today, we're glad to have you at Grace Point Valdosta. Amen. Appreciate you being here today. We're going to talk today about grace in the Old Testament, or grace in the Old Covenant. And a lot of times people don't see that very clearly in the Scripture. And so we want to look at that today. You know, grace is not just a New Testament thing. And uh, grace is not a characteristic of God that just all of a sudden popped up in the New Testament. In fact, it is the very backbone of the Old Testament, and a lot of people really don't know that. Many people wrongly think that the Old Testament is all about law and the New Testament is all grace, but God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God has always been and always will be a God of grace. Amen? And God has always and God always will set on a throne of grace. Can you say amen? And so sometimes as we look in the Old Covenant, we don't see that so readily, but there's many things in there that are types and shadows. How many knows what I mean by that phrase? There's types and shadows of things, and they are in the Old Covenant if we will just look for them. Um, I want to read Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, because this kind of lets us see something. Because Jesus preached a different message Uh, than the Apostle Paul preached. The Apostle Paul preached a message of grace that was given to him by revelation, he said. And that revelation came after the resurrection of Jesus, at least to the Apostle Paul. And so Paul and Jesus' preachings were somewhat of a paradox. There was a difference in the way that they preached, but Jesus, when he dealt with people, especially sinners, he dealt with them through grace and by grace. But when he preached, he was really highlighting and preaching the law. That's why he said things like, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. He said, if you don't forgive other people, then neither will your father forgive you. And if you don't understand that the New Testament, the New Covenant, does not start in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. I mean, that was just because you open your Bible and it says New Testament and you start reading That's not when the New Testament starts because the word testament is also the word covenant. The last will and testament. So how many knows somebody's will does not go into force until they have died? Go down to the lawyer and try to exercise your rights if you're in the will and the person still be alive and see how that works out for you. They have to die, right, before you can receive your inheritance. So Jesus had to die on the cross before we could receive what the will or the covenant, or the testament promised us. And that doesn't happen until he dies on the cross and sheds his blood. And that blood that was shed did not cover sin, but it removed it. It washed it away, as we just sung about this morning. And so we got to understand that they preached different messages. Why? Because they were under different periods of time and under different laws. In other words, Paul was under the law of grace, if you will, but Jesus was under the law of the old covenant. Galatians 4 and 4 says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born, look at this, under the law. He was born under the law, look in verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoptions, the adoption as sons. And so in both testaments, the old and the new, I want you to understand this, that people came to God By grace through faith. In other words, people in the old covenant still came to God by grace through faith. They couldn't receive the 
the, the inheritance of that fully until Jesus died, but they still came to God by grace through faith, even in the Old Testament. The Bible says in Genesis 15 and 6, we won't go there, but it says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Doesn't that sound like a New Testament thing to you? So how do you get righteousness in the New Testament? By believing. So Abraham believed God and it was what? It was accredited to his account. He was declared righteous. Why? Because of what he did? His actions, his, his, his performance? No. He was declared righteous even in the Old Covenant because he believed God. Do you see this? I know you're standing. I'm going to be standing longer than you. Helps my feelings for you to stand a little bit. Abraham believed God. It was counted him righteous. This is such an important scripture that that very scripture was quoted three times in the New Testament. So that's what we're going to look at today. Father, we do thank you for the grace of God that's throughout the word of God because you are a God of grace. And we give you praise and honor and glory for that. We pray that you would illumine our hearts, that you would transform our minds and therefore transform us through the renewing of our minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. amen. God bless you. You can be seated. There are so many powerful prophetic pictures in the Old Testament of what Jesus would do thousands of years later on the cross at a place called Calvary. And I told you these things are called types and shadows, and this may be a new thing to some of you, but listen, the work of the cross is in every book of the Bible, all 66 books that make up the Bible. And so I can preach grace from any book of the Bible. You believe that? Some of you act like you don't believe that. Let me ask that another way. I can preach Jesus from any book of the Bible, right? So if I can preach Jesus from any book of the Bible, guess what I'm preaching? I'm preaching the grace of God from any book in the Bible. So God did not start being grace in the Gospel of Matthew. He's always been a God of grace. And so the Old Testament, though, really confuses some people when they read it because there seems to be a, such a difference. I want you to understand this morning that it's not a difference in our God, but it's a difference in how God related to us. The problem in the Old Covenant was not God. The problem was that we didn't keep the, our end of the bargain of the covenant that was made with God through our forefathers. In other words, we didn't obey the law. We didn't keep the law. The Bible never said there was a problem with the law. The Bible said it was a problem with us keeping the law. Can you say amen? So the Old Testament is really uncut. How many see these movies? <laughs> Don't raise your hand. But we've got movies that are uncut and uncensored. That means even all the stuff they trimmed and hit the floor in the film room, they put it back in and they just put it there for you. And so it's an uncut, uncensored view of life in the Old Covenant. And what it does is it boldly presents all the rawness and sin and problems of humanity in the Old Covenant. Now, one of the reasons I know that God wrote the Bible is because if man had written the Scriptures, he would have left out much of what we read about in the Old Covenant. Man, we got some nasty stuff goes on in the Old Covenant. Amen? I mean, really. So, so God's grace invades us while the people of the Old Covenant, while we're living in such sin. And let me, let me just make this statement. You, anybody know what spackling is? When you mess up a sheetrock wrong, you get some spackling and try to cover over it. You know what I'm saying? Let me tell you what you can't spackle over. That's the edges of the Bible. And you can't do it with religiosity, nice language, and Sunday morning purdy. And, 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 and if you try to do that to the, to the Word of God, particularly the Old Covenant, 
then don't be surprised if the people are not gripped by the grace of God. I mean, God presents the old covenant, the old uh, way in, in such a raw, uh, you know, matter-of-fact way. And that's why it, if you understand that and you read that and see that, then you're gripped by the grace of God. I, I think most of us have been trained to read the Old Testament uh, morally instead of theologically. And so what I mean by that is we, we tend to read through the pages of the Old Covenant uh, for moral examples to follow. And a lot of times I hear people, and that's how they preach the Old Covenant. In other words, they say, well, you know, we need to be like Abraham, or we need to live like Jacob lived, and, and we need to be a leader like Moses was, or like Joshua or David. And uh, we need to fight like Samson and flee like Joseph and stand up for God like Esther did, and we need to pray like Elijah did. And so we got all these examples that we, you know, say, well, we need to be like these people. But the truth is that most of the characters in the Old Testament are not good examples to follow. They're not really somebody you want to hold up to your children and say, be like this guy, because Abraham was a liar. Y'all don't shout me down when I start preaching good. Abraham was good at lying, and he did it twice to save his own hide. He said, take my wife, carry to your harem. I don't care. That's not my wife anyway. It's just my sister. Bye, Sarah, holla back. She was headed to a harem. Not for milk and cookies. Come on, somebody. Isaac learned how to lie by watching his daddy, so Isaac told the same lie one time regarding his wife, that that's not my wife, that's my sister. Jacob was a deceiver and a cheater. Moses was a murderer. Judah sleeps with his daughter-in-law, but, you know, don't be so hard on him because he only did that because he thought she was a prostitute. <laughs> Samson was self-centered, enslaved to lust, and loved bloodshed. Now, these are not really good examples to hold up and say, be like these folks. Now, they had their moments, and yet in some aspect, they're types and shadows. But let me tell you something interesting that a lot of people miss. All of these people, that I, the ones I even just have just named, were not. This was prior to uh, the law. And so you don't even find God rebuking them. God never told Abraham, you shouldn't lie like that, son. God never even addresses his sin. He rebukes the king that took Sarah into her harem and said, if you touch her, you're a dead man. But he never rebukes Abraham for lying. He never rebukes uh, Isaac for lying or Jacob for his deception. Why? Does God not care? Sure he does. But the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 13, it says, For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. So God was not accrediting people's accounts with the sin that they were doing. And in fact, people look at God in the Old Covenant and think he's some kind of mean God that, you know, hurts people. And all that. Listen, God protected the first murderer from being murdered. Cain murders Abel, and God protects him. God doesn't come and judge him. God doesn't come and condemn him. God doesn't come and kill him. God protects him, puts a mark upon him so he won't be hurt, and says anybody touches you will, will be uh, sevenfold vengeance upon him. And so we see God protecting. We see God being that kind of God. And, and so sometimes people just don't understand. They, they act like they got two different gods. Like God, the old covenant, is the old angry man. And Jesus is the kindly son trying to, you know, keep God from killing folk. And the, the Holy Spirit's a bird. That's some people's trinity. Come on, somebody. 
And then even when we get with people that were under the law, like David, King David, I mean, he, he's among the most moral that we see in the Bible, except for some mess-ups. And when David messed up, he does like some of us, he really done it good. And so he was pretty moral, worshiper of God. You had a pretty good run there. And then all of a sudden, he lust, he, he covets, he, he stole, he fornicated, he lied. And then he killed one of his most loyal uh, comrades so that he could marry his wife. And he did all of that in one single episode. I've, I've never actually met anyone as sinful as David in my life. He murdered his close friend so he could marry his wife, whom he'd already had sex with. Mm, wow. If you follow some of these Old Testament heroes in the scripture, you're going to end up in prison. <clears throat> Come on now. The Old Testament is not a moral handbook on how to be a good person. That's not what it's for. The Old Testament is all about grace. It, what it does by highlighting the sin, all the sins of the people, I mean, so openly, so blatantly, so uncut, uncensored, raw sins, God puts it right in the pages. The Holy Spirit is the author behind the, the, word, the word of God. So the Holy Spirit chose those things to be in there. He didn't hide the sexual sins, the incest, the murder, the rapes, the, all the things that we see in the Old Covenant. I mean, they're right there, raw, uncut, right there in our face. And, and sometimes it's hard to put all that together. But the highlighting of those flaws of the people, really what it does is highlights the goodness and the power of a God who would still use such people to bring about the, the, the birth of Jesus and the saving of this world. We got Rahab the harlot who is in the lineage of the birth of Christ. We got Ruth who is a Moabite who's not even of, of the lineage of Israel who is in the lineage of Christ. We've got all these examples of God's grace much more stronger and more powerful than the sins and the debauchery of people. And lest any of us start looking down our pious nose like we're just some perfect lot now. Better move from there. I want to tell you something that concerns me as being the pastor of this house. If we're not careful, we can use the word of grace so much around here without really ever being transformed by it. <clears throat> what I mean by that, I mean perhaps grace to you maybe just becomes another church term. It's some kind of jargon that we pull out of our Christian bag of lingos and uh, you know, we say grace. They said, you know, before you meal, say grace over the meal. And I preach on grace every now and then around here. And then we've even gone to the point that we've changed the name of this church to Grace Point from Southland. And uh, we didn't do that because we wanted, you know, something to happen. We did that because something had already happened. We were lining the name up with what, where we were. And, but listen, but if we... If we never hug a harlot, if we never hang out and eat with sinners, if we, if we never forgive our enemies 70 times 7, then, then what happens is, is we, we confess grace with our lips, but we mock grace with our lives. And, 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 and that's not what it's about. Because the grace of God will result in the power to live overcoming godly lives in this present evil age, the Bible says. I'll talk about it in a few Sundays, but the grace of God empowers us and teaches us to say no to ungodliness. 
Grace don't empower sin. Grace empowers righteous living. Come on now. I'm not getting as much uh, amens on that part. Okay, help me, help me. But Grace Point Church, it, it, this is a safe haven, man, for those that have come in here worn out on the religious marathon of the endless treadmill of trying to please God by, you know, doing something that he'd make you like him, you know, or make you uh, be liked by God and trying to sin less. Listen, listen, this is not a sin management program up here. It's, it's a place where people absolutely get released and refreshed by the declaration of Jesus when he said, it is finished. And they're set free from that. I'm telling you, religion is a terrible thing. It, it, it's, the Bible talks about it and calls it like this. It's, it's people that have a form of godliness, but they deny the very power thereof. In other words, religion is a powerless form of godliness that denies us the real power needed to change us. It robs us of a real relationship with our creator and our maker, and it drives us into a lifestyle of endless frustration and, and doubt, and people doubt whether they're ever even really saved or not, or they wonder if they die or if they're going to go to heaven or not, and it's just a horrible, horrible way to live. There's a place uh, that God wants us to come to in the Holy Spirit, and this is a place where we teach the good news. I'm not up here giving you good advice. I'm giving you good news. This is a place... Where the truth, the gospel, the good news is, is preached. It's a place where, where we're not here to try to get you to sin less and do more for God. Maybe then God will like us. And, and we're, you know, we're so done with that treadmill. You know, we're always working. It never carries us nowhere. We're done with that. But when you start looking at the word grace in the old covenant, more than 20 times it appears. And sometimes we miss it because it's referred to as favor. Same word, same Hebrew word. And so even last Sunday, I preached from Genesis 6 and 8 about the first occurrence of the word grace, where Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so even the Bible uses the very word grace. One time it was talking about Esther, and it said Esther obtained grace and favor in the sight of the king. And that king is none other than a typology of God. So Esther obtained favor in the eyes of the king. And then there's things in the Old Covenant by things, what are you talking about? I'm talking about like the ark, Noah's ark, the literal boat. But most of you know, but that is a type and a shadow of the Lord Jesus, of his person and of his work that he would accomplish on the cross thousands of years later. But the ark, you know, all you had to do to get on the ark to escape the judgment that was coming, all you had to do to get on the ark was to believe Noah. Noah's not at the door checking you and seeing if you are worthy to get on the boat. Nobody's looking at you. You either believe or you don't. If you believe, get on. <laughs> and that ark had three floors or three stories, three floors. Jesus, the way, the truth, the life. The ark had one door. Throw away all those pictures, man, of the ark that got all these doors and windows. One door in the side. If any man be in Christ, so we enter into the side that was opened up on the cross of Jesus. You enter into the ark. God didn't say get in the ark. God said come to Noah and his family, come in. God's always calling you to himself. So he called them into the ark. In the ark, you can rest because there's no sails to, to flur or whatever. There's no ropes to tend. There's no helm. There's no steering wheel. There's no rudder. There's nothing for you to do. 
All the provision you'll need is on board. There's nothing to plant, nothing to reap, nothing to sow. All the food you need is there. Everything you need is there. And there's one window. There's not windows all around, and there's one window, and it opens like a hatch, and all you can see is the sky. Look up. Look your, if you're going to look, you're going to look up. You're not going to look out. Come on now. And humans being as humans are, you can't tell me that Noah being locked up on a boat with his family, eight souls, for over a year. Do you understand that they were on that boat, which I'm guaranteeing you by the time of that end of the year was over, that boat was extremely small. Some of you can't stand to be locked up with your wife over a weekend and you... With all this family in a boat for a year, you don't think that somebody lost their temper in there? You don't think there was some cussing on that ark? You just ain't never been locked up with folk. The point is this, no matter how many times they may have fallen down, but they couldn't fall out. Because you're in the boat. You're in Christ. You're in Jesus. Amen? You're secure. The judgment waters, when God told him to build that boat, he told him to use pitch. We don't use that word. We don't know. But pitch means like that mud thing that they would seal all the, the cracks in the wood so that the water, the judgment waters, if you will, would never come in to the boat to where they were. Never touch them. The word pitch there in Hebrew is the word atonement. So in the Old Covenant, there was an atonement. In other words, God covered people's sins. He atoned for their sins. But in the New Testament, Jesus didn't atone for sins. That's why when I was teaching the series on myths, that we know one of the myths is that, you know, your sin is under the blood. That sin's under the blood. That sin's not under the blood. You've got to get your head out of the Old Covenant. That sin has been removed, taken away, annihilated, itemized. It doesn't exist. God took away sin. He didn't cover your sin. Somebody comes up to you and says, Brother, you just need to put that sin under the blood. What are you telling me? Jesus messed up on the cross? He left some sin out? There was some like, Oh, I didn't, that got away from me. I didn't see that one. Y'all need to grab that one and throw it back under the blood. Are you kidding me? How many times did Jesus go to the cross? How many times did he bleed? He did it for once and for all for what? For sin. If he did it for sin, he did it for all sin, past, present, and future. And that's one of the greatest revelations that people ever come to because it, just, it destroys so much false teaching if you understand that Jesus did remove the sin of the world at the cross. So if he removed all sin, did he remove it all or not? That means the one you even committed yet. And right there, well, that, we can just go out and sin just any haphazard. You can go out and sin haphazard anyway. Because the church I was raised in said that even if you go under that thing, i got to confess everyone one by one. All you're confessing is the ones you remember. What about all them you forgot about and don't even see? Him to know it, do good and do it not, to him it is a sin. Did you confess that one? No. <laughs> you don't understand that Jesus paid it all. He paid it all or none at all. Amen? Amen? Another thing that's a type and shadow is the Ark of the Covenant. Man, that's the holiest 
object on earth. And you know, people are still mesmerized by that. I see programs all the time where they're trying to find the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, uh, you know, just, they're always trying to find it somewhere. They think it's on an island out at Nova Scotia. I, I, you know, I like that program, if you know what I'm talking about. You know, they hope to, you know, dig it up out of there. They think that it might be there. They might brought it all the way over here. You know, wherever it's at, it's just a type and a shadow of the person and the work of Jesus. How many know what I'm talking about with the Ark of the Covenant? Some of these younger folks. Okay, Indiana Jones. <laughs> now you with me? You remember what happened to the Germans when they took the lid off the ark? Especially that one dude. <laughs> Didn't go well for him, did it? His face like kind of melts right there in front of you. That's about what will happen to you. Do, do you know that that ark of the covenant, that box, it symbolizes Jesus. It was made out of acacia wood. God gave very specific dimensions and instructions in this design. And the acacia wood is known in Israel as incorruptible wood. It's impervious to insects. It's a type of the humanity of Jesus. Yet that humanity, that wood of that ark box was covered in pure gold, which is a type of the divinity of Christ. And then that ark of the covenant, that box, was covered with a solid gold lid that's called the mercy seat. And... That mercy seat being pure gold, that is where the cherubims were being on top of that. And the blood of those animals in the Old Covenant was placed on top of the mercy seat. And, and, but what is interesting is the three items that were placed inside the Ark of the Covenant. So we got the Ten Commandments, the tablets, the actual tablets that, that the Ten Commandments were written upon. We have that inside, placed inside the Ark of the Covenant. And so remember that Ark of the Covenant, as I say these things, that's the type of Jesus himself. And so the Ten Commandments are placed inside there. That represents man's rebellion against the law of God. Man cannot keep the law of God. Man continually breaks the law of God. And so God takes that law and he puts it inside the Ark of the Covenant. Then we have Aaron's rod that not only budded, but it brought forth overnight ripe, full almonds. You talk about some almond joy. So we got these leaders, and they have their staffs. Okay, these, these sticks that used to be trees that are now cut down and fashioned into a staff that represent their families, and they were very important. But now we have the people rebelling against God's chosen leaders, leadership. And so they, they start grumbling and complaining about their leader. I know you've never heard of it in 2017, but occasionally it happens. And so when they start griping about their leader, God tells Moses, you tell them to get all those staffs and place them before the Ark of the Covenant and leave them there overnight, and I'll show you who I've chosen to be my leader. And so in the next morning, Aaron, everybody else gets their dead stick, and Aaron comes out, and his has got flowers and full ripe almonds on it. I mean, God kind of screamed, this is my dude, I've chosen him. But that's man's rebellion against God's chosen leaders. And then lastly, we have the jar or pot of manna. This manna was amazing stuff. It was called angel's food. And when it first started falling during the night and they would go out in the morning and gather it, they said, it's like angel's food. They, they, they loved the taste of it. They said, it's wonderful. And, and, and the people that, that ate that food 
for those 38, 40 total years that they were in the wilderness, not one of them got sick. They didn't have to run to Walmart and buy new sandals, new dresses, or new clothes. The, the, the Bible, I'm telling you what the book says. It says the, the, the shoes grew with the feet. How many moms and dads wouldn't take that with them little ones? They, you don't need hard to get no wear time. And then they got to throw them away and get another set. The, sh- the shoes grew with defeat. I mean, so that's supernatural provision. And even though they got excited initially, there come a day that they said, we are sick of this manna. They said that, that it is useless. It is, it is um, worthless bread, they said. Can you imagine a bread that you can eat that will, that will provide that kind of sustenance and you call it worthless you know, there's people that one thing uh, in their past, you know, there were times in their past where things of God that came from heaven were precious to them, and now they see it as worthless. They see the Bible as worthless, going to church, worthless. They see it all as worthless bread now. And they've been so deceived, and yet God never cut off the bread. He's a God of grace. Even though they grumbled and griped and complained, God never stopped. God said, well, I'll let you go a few weeks and just starve to death, and then I'll get your attention. No, he never does that. He still fed them faithfully every day, six days a week, and on the sixth day told them to gather up double and not to go out on the Sabbath. And they would be some of them that would be so afraid, and they would gather more than they needed, and it would decay and become rotten and worms in it. But God was always a God of grace that provided for them. But So God has in that box, in that Ark of the Covenant, all of man's rebellion and sin against him represented in that Ark of the Covenant. In the jar of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablet. And then what he does is he puts a lid on it and he seals it with a mercy seat. And then the blood is applied to that. So in other words, God doesn't look upon all those things of man's rebellion anymore. All he sees is the blood now when he looks down. And so because of all of this, all our sins have been cleansed now. Even under that old covenant, they were sealed and put away by the blood. And God told a command that they were no one to ever remove the lid off of that box once it was placed on there. And in fact, if you read uh, the Septuagint, uh, the Septuagint as some people call it, but that's just a Greek rendition of the Old Covenant. But if you look up the word mercy seat there, it literally means propitiation. It's the same word. So when, when, when the writer in the New Covenant said that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins, he literally said that Jesus is the mercy seat for our sins. And so the, the, all of that rebellion and sin was put inside Jesus, the Ark of the Covenant, and sealed with the mercy of God, the grace of God, sealed by the blood. And yet in the Old Covenant, there were people, still people that wanted to pull the lid off and see what's in there. In 1 Samuel 6, 19, we won't go there, but that's just where it recounts this village called Beth Shemesh. And those people there pulled the lid off the Ark of the Covenant. And when they did, 50,070 of them perished. More just than the one dude in the Ark of the Covenant movie. 50,070 died. Why? Because they took the lid off. They remove the mercy of God. I think God's trying to tell us something about that. No, nobody was even supposed to take a peek at the Ten Commandments. And, and God did not want, listen, God didn't want his law exposed because it represented all the rebellion and, 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 and would only minister death and condemnation. So God said, let it be sealed. And, and, but you know what's peculiar to me today? 
People will take those same commandments, and not only will they take them out of the mercy, out of the out from under the mercy seat and pull the lid off, they pull them out in the front yard on a placard. Some have fought to have it, you know, in the schools, and fought to have it here, and fought to have it there. And I'm not saying the Ten Commandments have zero use. The Bible says the Ten Commandments are not for the righteous, though; they're for the sinners. Sinners need laws, right? But the righteous don't. And so, it's just, it's just unusual. God kept the law hidden under the, the mercy seat. And so not only was grace typified in things like the Ark of the Covenant or, the, or the, the, the Noah's Ark, but also prophetic types of things that people did. Remember, I think it was two Sundays ago, I talked to you how that, that uh, Jacob and Esau, these brothers, how Jacob, even though he was a deceiver and all that stuff, yet he put on Esau's garments. Remember that? And he put on Esau's garments because Esau was a, a hairy man. And, and he went into his father's room to receive his blessing. His, he, he was so fearful that he wouldn't be accepted by his father. Yet he put on his brother's garments, remember? And he went in before him. And, and, and his father said, you know, you, you smell like uh, uh, Esau and you feel like Esau, but your voice sounds like Jacob. And yet he was accepted because he was in his brother's, elder brother's garments. That's a type and a shadow again. In other words, how are we accepted? I, I feel like God one time said to me, I will always find you, and you will always be accepted because I will find you hidden in my beloved. Who is the beloved of God? Jesus Christ. So we've put on Christ. We are in Christ. When I go before the Father, I don't have to worry. I'm in Christ. And when the Father reaches out and touches, he says, all I smell and feel is Jesus. He said, your voice sounds like there, but you smell and feel like Jesus. Come on in, son. Come on now. Come on. Give God praise for that. But what I want to do is, in, in our remaining few minutes, I want to look at another act that is typified in the old covenant of grace. And, and so that's when uh, Jacob, or, or excuse me, Joseph comes before his father, Jacob. And that's found in Genesis 48. I'm not going to read all that for the sake of time. But the 48th chapter of the book of Genesis records this. And so Joseph, remember his story being in Egypt. He married an Egyptian woman, and they have two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh is the oldest. Ephraim is the youngest. And so uh, one of the big deals was to receive the blessing of the father. And the reason this is such a big deal, because really these boys should not have been in the blessing of God because they are a mixed breed, so to speak. In other words, their mother is Egyptian, a Gentile not Jewish, but yet so because they're not Jewish, they would have to be an act done by Jacob to bring them into the lineage of the blessing of Israel. And so although that blessing had been promised, it had not been given yet. And so now one day as Jacob is old and his, his body is about to, to die and be in eternity, uh, Joseph is told that it's time, son. Your dad has sent for you, it's time. And it's, 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 a, it's a sacred, precious moment. And so Joseph gets his two sons. All of this is in Genesis 48. And he gets Manasseh. And he gets Ephraim. And he goes before uh, his father. And when he goes there, uh, Joseph understands protocol. He understands that the eldest son is the one who receives the blessing from the father. The eldest son gets the double portion of the blessing from the father. And so that would be uh, Manasseh. So he's bringing him and Ephraim 
comes along and tags along, and they will be some blessing, but it's not the blessing. It's not the, the double portion blessing that we find in the Old Covenant. And so all of the you know, uh, eyes are upon this sacred moment, and he brings his sons up. You'll find down in, in verse 12 of Genesis 48, he talks about how he positions his son. And he brings Manasseh, where, so we got uh, Jacob in the bed. The Bible says that he, he, he musters his strength, one translation said. He, with all of his might, he pushes himself up in the bed to strengthen himself so that he can release the blessing upon these two grandsons of his. But this is absolutely essential. So we have a son, Joseph, coming to his father to have his sons blessed. It's an awesome moment. And so uh, Joseph comes in and he positions Manasseh. So as uh, Jacob would reach his hand out, it would be upon Manasseh. So the right hand of blessing would come. And he positions Ephraim for the left hand of blessing. And, uh, and so then the Bible says that Joseph bows his head. It's such a sacred moment. And so now... He lifts his hands and begins to, to uh, administer. Uh, Jacob does the blessing of God upon this oldest son. And, uh, you know, I always wonder what Ephraim might have been going through his mind because it's like Manasseh's going to get the blessing and it's like Ephraim's just kind of there. It's like, well, come on. You know, you're kind of, we want you to watch this. Watch your brother get married. Watch your brother, you know what I'm saying? It's kind of that kind of a deal. And, um, you know, hoping for some blessing, but he really realizes that the blessing is going to go to his elder brother, Manasseh. And so they're there, and uh, Joseph has his head bowed, just a sacred moment. Jacob starts to speak, lifts his hands up, and this, you know, Joseph can't help but, you know, lift his head up to watch his dad. And the Bible says as he starts down with his arms and his hands, he does that. He crosses his arms. And he breaks all protocol. Let's use the word we used last Sunday. He does something scandalous. And he lays his right hand of blessing upon Ephraim's head. And he puts his left hand, which is no significance of the left hand, on Manasseh's head. See, Manasseh is the firstborn. Manasseh is the rightful heir. Manasseh is the right son. In other words, if Ephraim was to cry out and say, Dad, why don't I get a blessing? He just said, you were born wrong, son. Can't help it. You're just born wrong. And there's not anything you can do, Ephraim, to be born right because you were born wrong. Can I tell everybody in here you all born wrong? Can I say that we all born wrong? And can I say that ain't my opinion? That's the word of God in Romans 5, 19. It says because of one man's disobedience, Adam, many were born sinners, made sinners. Do you know we were born wrong? We were born sinners. We're all Ephraim. We're born wrong. We can't buy a blessing, get a blessing. Ain't nothing we can do to earn a blessing. Because you're born wrong. It's bad to be born wrong. We were born wrong. And here Jacob does this, 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 this unethical, scandalous, crazy thing. He, he crosses his arms. And, 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 and Joseph is, the Bible says this, it displeased Joseph. I mean, this, Joseph is, is angry. Joseph is, Joseph just can't believe it. 
And in fact, listen, Joseph is so messed up by that that the Bible says he has the audacity to reach and grab Jacob's hand, his father's hand. He tries to pull his hand, right hand, hand a blessing off of Ephraim's head. He's talking about my dad, he's blind as a bat. He don't even know what he's doing. We should have been here last week before he had dementia or something. I mean, he don't even know. And he's pulling his hand. And, 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 and you know what he says? And when he grabs his hand, and Jacob's resisting him. And he, say, he makes this statement. He says, not so. Joseph says, not so. It's amazing how many believers are living under a not so. Instead of under grace. Come to church and I tell you, all your sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven at the cross. Not so. That God will never be angry with you again. Not so. That by his stripes you was healed 2,000 years ago. Not so. That you're righteous now. And forever and eternally. Not so. How many of them you want me to go through? I'm just getting warmed up. Not so. They don't believe it. News too good to be true. Not so. I don't believe it. I try to tell them. I said, listen, you're already blessed. You're praying for the blessing. Oh, God, bless me. I said, you've already been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Not so. You can't do nothing to make God not like you. Not so. I'm out of fellowship with the Lord. I mean, it's just, it's just so many Christians live under a not so. I even try to tell them, you know what? You can prosper in your business. You can have a healthy marriage. You can, you, you, can, you can enjoy your life. Not so. They don't know. They're living under not so instead of under grace. Something inside them tells them, you know what? That might be for that one or this one or that person back there, but it's not for you, dude. It's not so. I mean, there's some in here that are gifted. There's some that's God's favorite. I mean, some of God's special kids, you know, they're highly favored, but not so for you. I mean, look at your past. What are you even doing here? I mean, look at your performance. Look at your lineage. Look at your legacy. Look at your track record. Look at you all up in here trying to get a blessing. Not so. That's a lying devil. Amen. Jesus is, if you hadn't figured it out, our Manasseh. Jesus is our Manasseh. And they, listen, there would be a day that would come after this moment that I'm talking about. In Genesis 48, there would be a day thousands of years in the future where God the Father would look upon his son. The, the, the one who was born right. The one who was born spotless. The one who was born sinless. The, the one who deserved the right hand of blessing from his father. And God would look upon the other sons of humanity. The Ephraims among us. The ones who were born wrong. Born sinners. Born in bondage. Born in slavery. And that God would not only cross his arms, but he would put his Manasseh son on a cross for us. 
And he would lay the hand of blessing upon those who did not deserve it, did not earn it, could not do anything to achieve it or get it. He would put his hand of blessing upon Ephraim and he would put his son on the cross and he would give him all of our sin, all of our rebellion, all that was our lot because of our birth. My God, that if I don't wait... Make you want to shout your woods wet, brother, you telling you. I'm, come on now, I'm about to run here. Woo! And you know what? All of the wrath, all the punishment for sin went upon Manasseh. And all the undeserved blessings went upon us because we're all Ephraim. You know what? The Bible's so cool, man. The name Manasseh, you know what it means? Listen to what it means. It means to cause to forget it means to remit, and it means to remove. You know what Manasseh, Jesus did? He caused us to forget all of our sin, all of our rebellion. He remitted or removed our sin and, and, and took it away from us on the cross. You know what Ephraim means? Fruitfulness. Some of you have convinced yourself that you have no right to be successful, happy, fruitful in this life based on what you've done. I just come to tell you that that's a lie. There ain't none of this about performance or earthly merit or anything that we would do in this life. It is all because of the grace of God. We are every one of us here by scandal. We are here by the precious scandal of the grace of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you something. You got to learn to embrace grace because grace has embraced you. <laughs> Come on now. You got to, you, you, you know, God has embraced us, man, with the undeserved blessing. He put his right hand of blessing upon us. I love this, man. The Bible says, whom the Son is set free is free indeed. You know what? You are free in this place. You, you're free because why? Because he set you free. He sets you free. You're free to be fruitful. You're free to be blessed. You're free to have a blessed marriage. You're free to, to be a, a blessing in the marketplace. You're free to be blessing to this city, blessing to your family. You're free. You're free. Come on now. You're free because of Jesus. Come on, stand to your feet this morning. Do you receive the word of God today? Amen. Glory to God. I'm getting so good on time. 1143 and I'm through. What's wrong with me? Must be the grace of God. <laughs> Ministry team, please come quickly. We love you guys with all of our heart here at Grace Point. Whether it's your first Sunday or this your thousandth time being here, man, we want you to know we love you. We want to pray with you if you desire prayer for any reason. There's my little precious baby, Poppy's girl. <laughs> Amen. But we love you. Aren't you glad? For the God of grace. And all through the old covenant now, when I read the word of God, I just see grace everywhere I look. I see it in my life. I see it in my church. I see it in the Bible. God's not a God of the old covenant that's mean and cruel and harsh. He's always, has, always, will, and always will forever be the God of grace. Who sits on the throne of grace. And he loves his children. We're undeserving. But through the blood of Jesus, he's made us worthy. You receive that today. Man, I don't know what's going on in your life. Life is still life, isn't it? Somebody says life happens, and it does. 
My little wife is not here because Brother Aiden's, you know, the flu type A. We decided we wouldn't, you know, try to get him here today. He's just having a rough, rough go. Poppy's laid hands on him, rebuked, bounced, loosed everything, you know. Life, life is difficult sometimes. I mean, there's things that are real and things that are not, you know, just because you go hallelujah don't mean they're not problems. But what you have is a God of grace. And I hope you see that. I, I hope you can see that everywhere you look in the Word of God. And it helps you to realize that here ye, O Israel, you have one God, one Lord. There's one faith. There's one spirit. There's one baptism. And it's all Jesus. God's always been that God. And we the ones that broke the covenant. We're the ones that couldn't keep the commandment. I've always been so amazed by something that many people overlook. Is that when God knew that Adam and Eve had sinned and rebelled against him. And chose Satan rather than him. Yet God still made that cool of the evening walk. And he still showed up. It's an amazing God. He will always be there. Grace will chase you down. Grace will hunt you better than a bloodhound. I mean, grace will hunt you down. God paid too much for you just to haphazardly let you live your life like you want to. You might reject him, but you'll have to because he's going to be there. If you're on the Mayus Road, confused as, as you can be by what the events of the day, and you're walking the wrong way, seven miles away from where you should be. Grace will chase you down and show up, walk right with you. And he'll say, why are y'all sad? And they said, man, you a tourist? You ain't never been around here before? Haven't you heard that they crucified our Messiah, the one we thought that was going to liberate us and set us free? We had hoped, had hoped that he was going to be the one, but we don't hope anymore. That's why we're walking to Emmaus instead of staying in Jerusalem. And he says, you know what? I don't like you walking away the wrong way, sad, but I'm right here. And I want to help you with the scriptures. And the Bible said, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he expounded to them himself in the scriptures. And he goes in, you know, Genesis you know Genesis, you ever, the book of beginnings, yeah. You, you know, all that happened in that book, some of which I just preached to you, Jesus said that was me. All that in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. And he goes through all the Bible, 39 books of the Old Covenant, and he reveals himself. Grace, preaching grace to people that so desperately need it. Do you receive that today? Amen. Let's give him one more praise. <clears throat> Listen, I'm going to dismiss the church here. And as the church is dismissed, if you want prayer for any reason, you, you just come meet us down here, okay?